Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Hu Yonghua, uh, School of, of Public Health, Peking University. Uh, I'm very honored uh, to chair this section. Uh, and this panel, the title is Healthcare. And uh, uh, so, uh, because my English is not good enough, so I would like to speak in Chinese. I think maybe most people can understand Chinese. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's your name? Uh, I'm sorry, my name is Hu Yunghua. Uh, I'm from the School of Public Health at uh, Peking University. I'm very glad to uh, chair this panel about the uh, health care. As you know, health is our biggest concern. In the past decades, in social and economic development, China has made a lot of progress. However, in the development of health care, we have encountered a lot of problems, especially in recent years. We have made some reforms in the medical and healthcare system, and the people are do care about this. Health is a concern of every people. Nobody wants to visit a doctor. However, from your birth to your death, you cannot live without doctors. Then, how can we integrate our economic development with our medical service? How can we design a good medical system that uh, is suitable or adaptable to China's economic development? This is one of the important uh, issues in China's uh, economic, uh, uh, in China's uh, uh, medical and healthcare reform. Uh, we have clear goals, so that uh, our goal is that uh, small people can have uh, fair and equitable access to healthcare. How to realize this? In spite of the fact that we have made some achievements in recent years, however, there are still many problems. We need to work together to have discussions. We have to learn from the uh, international advanced experience. Today, we have a set opportunity to have to uh, uh, world uh, uh, to distinguished uh, uh, speakers to give the presentations. The first speaker is Professor Julian Legrand. He is a famous economics and uh, he has worked uh, as a professor of NSE since 1993. From 2003 to 2005, he was seconded full time to number 10 down the street as a senior policy advisor to the Prime Minister Tony Blair. He has also acted as an advisor to the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the European Commission, and OECD, and the OECD's Treasury and Department of Health. He is currently the chairman of Health England, and he is one of the principal architects of the UK government's current public uh, service reforms in England. So he is a senior expert in this field. So he's a speaker, and uh, the respondent to the presentation is uh, Dr. Hank Beckdam. Dr. Beckdam is our old friend, especially during the outbreak of SARS in 2003. The 
WHO experts under the leadership of uh, Dr. Uh, Becker Dam made uh, great contributions to uh, the solution uh, of uh, SARS. So his Chinese name is Bei Hanwei. Maybe you are familiar with his Chinese name. He was a alumnus uh, of LSE. And he has to take in some important offices at uh, WHO. So uh, today they are coming to our panel. Let's uh, welcome them with a big round of applause. Professor Julie Guang, give us a speech, okay? Thank you very much, Chairman. Um, and uh, I feel very privileged to be here. It's my first time in Beijing. Uh, and when they let us all escape, I'm looking forward to exploring uh, the city. And it's a great privilege to be in China. Um, now, look, you've all had a series of stimulating, exciting presentations. Um, but I know what you really came here for was a standard, boring LSE lecture full of PowerPoints, overloaded diagrams, incomprehensible text. And so that's what I'm going to give you. Uh, uh, but we're running a bit short of time, so I will try and, uh, try and make it relatively short. But don't worry, the exam will be quite easy at the end, and we pass most people. Um, so, um, healthcare. Um, basically, there are um, uh, a number of different... Uh, uh, questions you can ask about healthcare, but two fundamental ones. The first is the question of access. Um, do, do the citizens of your country, the citizens of our, all our countries, do they have access to healthcare? Access to healthcare without barriers of uh, finance or other difficulties to get there. Uh, uh, on most countries, uh, many countries, many developed countries um, have resolved this problem. Um, most European countries have resolved it. The United States is uh, struggling with it uh, as a problem. Uh, uh, with the Obama reforms, there's, it's moved a little way towards achieving uh, that. So it's still not fully there. Um, I know that China, China historically had, a, of course, uh, excellent access to systems uh, pre-1980, but I know in recent years China has encountered challenges in this respect. Um, and, but I do understand that with the reforms now going forward, there is an extension of insurance, of social insurance, to more and more groups of citizens, particularly in the rural areas. And maybe, and hopefully within a few years' time, the access problem uh, in China will be resolved. However, there is still one further problem uh, which has to be resolved and which all systems have to resolve. And I have to say, most systems are not very good at resolving. And that is the issue of access to what? Access to good quality health care. Basically, we want health care that is of high quality, that does its job of actually raising people, improving people's health. Uh, that actually is equitable, it's fair, uh, it's distributed fairly, that it's responsive to the needs and wants of its users, and that is efficient in its use of resources. Um, and that is the kind of the next challenge. Can we actually 
devise a healthcare system that will deliver healthcare with all those um, uh, possibilities. Um, well, there are basically four, which that's a little too far, I don't know. Um, there are basically four ways to deliver a health service, and I call them trust, mistrust, voice, and choice. Uh, they are all bad. Um, in Britain, we have tried them all. Um, they've all failed. Um, however, some have failed slightly less badly than others. And that's what I want to tell you a little bit about. Um, and most health service reforms, in, most health services use all of these models, trust, mistrust, voice and choice, but they usually involve shifting the balance between towards or away from one or more of the models. Let me start off with trust. What happens with trust? Well, uh, in a government system, basically what happens is the government sets, the, sets an overall budget um, that it... Oh, sorry. Uh, hold on one second. The government sets the budget, and then you have doctors and nurses who are employed by the government... Uh, and who have freedom over how the budget is set. I'm sorry, it keeps on doing this. I don't think it's me that's, uh, me that's doing it. Nope, it's, it's, it's got a mind of its own. <laughs> it's moving onwards. Could it be stopped, do you think? <laughs> Could we move back? Nope. Nope. Okay, we're getting there, I think. Okay, stop. That's fine. Um, so, um, the government provides the service, it sets the budget, and uh, you have doctors and nurses, and basically they're trusted. They're trusted to get on with it. Uh, and that, the British Health Service used to be like that. Um, and maybe in pre-1980s China, although I would be very interested to hear people's comments and views as to whether that was the situation. Um, or you can have a system that's privately provided and funded um, in much of the United States, much of post-1980s China. Um, and there, the trust model works in a slightly different way. Doctors and hospitals are still trusted, but they're trusted to prescribe and treat only as necessary uh, and to submit honest bills to the people who are paying for it, which might be private insurance companies, they might be social insurance companies, they might be patients directly uh, out-of-pocket payments. Um, now, in many ways, this is a good way to run a health system. It does have a lot of advantages. The professionals like it. Um, it has uh, high morale. Uh-oh, we're off again. Um, let's go back. The professionals like it. Um, uh, it's high morale. People don't like being told what to do. They, 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 it, it's nice to be trusted. I'm a public sector professional. I like being trusted. Um, there's no monitoring costs. If you trust somebody, you don't have to monitor them. And in some ways, in a, trust, uh, in a society where people trust each other, it's a good society. It's a better society than one where people mistrust each other. But it does have one big problem with it. It does assume that everybody who works in the system uh, are actually um, oh, going forward again. That everyone who works in the system uh, 
are, in a sense, perfectly altruistic. Their only concern is with the concern of the patients they're dealing with. They're not in any way concerned with their own self-interest. Um, but in practice, of course, nobody is perfectly altruistic. Uh, I'm not perfectly altruistic. Nobody here is perfectly altruistic. No uh, doctors, nurses are, uh, are perfectly altruistic. Of course, we all have concerns about our own welfare, our own income, our own families, our own security, uh, our own interests. And of course, they, they play a part in motivating us as to what we do. And if you have got a problem that people are at least partly motivated by self-interest, and inevitably they will be partly motivated by self-interest, the model offers perverse incentives. um, So that, for instance, in a publicly provided system, what happens is that basically there's too little incentive. There are incentives for under-treatment. Basically, too little care is provided. Systems are unresponsive. Uh Uh-oh. Um, they, are, they are unresponsive and they provide too, too little of the services provided. In a fee-for-service system, such as you have currently in China in many aspects, um, you get incentives for overtreatment. Chinese hospitals receive a lot of their incomes from prescriptions and from providing high-tech services. Uh, as a result, there is almost certainly overtreatment, and I have seen estimates that suggest that in China, 30% of drug spending is unnecessary. I gather drug spending is now, Henke was telling me, is now running at about half the total spending um, uh, in China, which is uh, very high by international standards. And almost certainly a large proportion of it uh, is not really serving to improve health. In Britain, as I say, we tried the trust model. It didn't work, so we've shot over to... The opposite, which is mistrust model. Um, now, uh, right, okay. The mistrust model, um, that's basically where government tells people what to do. Government doesn't, tr- nobody trusts the doctors or the nurses anymore. They move totally to the opposite extreme. Um, and they move to, they essentially mistrust everybody. Doctors and nurses are regarded as utterly selfish individuals. They're purely in it for themselves. The doctors simply want to get on the golf course uh, or want to earn as much money as possible. Um, And uh, there's no concern for the patients. So the only way to do it is via telling people what to do. And there are various forms of mistrust takes. The government controls the prices, and that does happen to some extent in China, Uh, And in the UK, we control the price of pharmaceuticals. Um, The government only funds improved treatments. In in China, you have an essential medicines list. Uh, We have something called NICE. I will mention NICE in a moment. Um, And the government restricts what's available. It actually rations health care. Also, the government actually gets around to telling people what to do, like in the old Soviet-style system. Um, They set targets... Uh, that must be achieved and uh, they uh, ensure that the targets are achieved by various techniques. I shall come to that in a moment. NICE. NICE is the National Institute of Clinical Effectiveness. This is quite a useful device. Um, uh Um, It 
basically, it decides for the government what should be funded under the National Health Service and what should not be funded. Um, and basically, it applies a criterion of what is called cost-effectiveness. That's a criterion that essentially says that uh, if anything costs more than £30,000, about 300,000 guan, about 300,000 yuan to extend your life by one year, suitably adjusted for quality, uh, then it's not worth it and we will not pay for it. And as a result, a number of drugs, arthritis drugs, a whole range of drugs, some cancer drugs, uh, are not funded under the British system because they're regarded as too expensive and too ineffective. Um, as a result, as it says there, it's also known as nasty, uh, meaning not available, so treat yourself. Uh, not available under the National Health Service system. Um, so, we have tried targets on performance management. The government sets the target and monitors performance, uh-oh, and uh, it sets, gives rewards and penalties to the staff for achieving the target. Uh, usually there are penalties. Usually people are, uh, are fired. They lose their job. It became known as targets and terror uh, in the system. Um, and um, when I was working for government, um, I was working for 10 Downing Street, working for Tony Blair, um, I distrusted this. I didn't believe this system would work. Um, I'm an economist by training, and economists don't like this kind of thing. Um, but rather to my surprise, I found it did work. Um, uh, I was slightly shocked. Um, we, set a we had people waiting for uh, uh, an incredible length of time um, for simple operations, hernias, cataracts. We had people waiting for years, literally years, for these operations, very cheap operations. We had people waiting for years. Um, so uh, we, uh, we set a target. We said no more patients should wait longer than 12 months. Um, and as you can see, um, essentially, we achieved that target. We got it down to zero in 2003. Um, um, at the same time, I'm just trying to do it okay, um, Scotland and Wales, um, which are different parts of Britain, different parts of the United Kingdom, with a different health system from England. Um, Uh-oh, gosh, now that's spectacular. Um, <clears throat> Okay, thank you. Leave, leave it there for the moment. Um, uh, England, where, uh, Scotland and Wales, they, did, they went for the trust model. They trusted their doctors and nurses. They did not go for um, uh, a, uh, a mistrust model. Um, and this is what happened to them. Their waiting times, they, the numbers steadily increased. And that was despite the fact that they had more resources per head than did England. Uh, they then introduced some form of... Uh, Northern Ireland, I'm sorry, that's a, a, another part of the United Kingdom, and that also used the trust model. Northern Ireland and Wales then used, uh, introduced a form of targets and terror, and that's what happened. Whoops. Um, Scotland changed its system of measurement. That's a good trick, incidentally. Very useful. If you have a government policy that is failing, 
change your system of measurement, and then it doesn't become so obvious. Um, um, however, although I think it works, oh, there's another example of how it worked. Um, uh, we had people waiting for days in emergency rooms, literally days. They wait 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours in, in emergency rooms. So we said that everybody had to be uh, in the had to be within uh, uh, had to be seen within four hours of arriving in an emergency room. Four hours was the maximum time, and it worked. We achieved it. We got 98 percent of people for four hours, despite the fact we had a big increase in numbers of people coming in to the service at the time. Um, so it works, but. Um, I think it has the wrong incentives within it. I think, at the end of the day, it's a dangerous uh, system. Um, if prices are controlled, then the incentive is to sell as much as possible. Um, if quantity are controlled, you raise the prices. Uh, if both are controlled, you focus on uncontrolled areas to raise revenue. I do understand that happens with Chinese hospitals. There's a big drive to sell areas, areas where there are not prices are controlled. Um, with um, targets and performance management, uh, resources get concentrated in the wrong places. They get concentrated on things that are targeted. There is what is called in English gaming the system. That is to say it is changing uh, the behavior of people in ways that meet the target but actually don't really work to benefit the patient. Um, and, of course, there's incentive to misrepresent the figures, to lie. And, and we get a lot of that. We do get a lot of, of all of those things have happened, uh, with people actually lying, misrepresenting the figures, with, with fiddling the figures in various ways, uh, and with concentrating on the wrong things. I was in a meeting with Tony Blair, um, with the Prime Minister, when we were running these targets, and... Uh, we were talking actually about the emergency rooms and he was said do we just have to keep on doing this do we have to keep on uh, year, month after month year after year cracking the whip over these uh, the people who work in these emergency rooms these, these consultants um, and just beating them up all the time uh, in order to achieve these targets or is there some way in which we could actually, he didn't quite use this language, um, uh, we could actually uh, set up incentives within the system to actually, so that people would want to do it at their own accord. We wouldn't need to keep beating them up in order to achieve this. The, 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 the specialists would want their emergency rooms, no one to wait longer than four hours. No one would have to wait years for hernia operations, cataracts. Or, could we build incentives within the system to do that? Um, and we said, well, yes, Prime Minister, there are actually, there are two ways of doing this, um, and both of them rely upon patients themselves, patients themselves to actually improve. One is to rely upon the patient's voices, and the other is to rely on choices. Now, I won't spend very long on voices. We, um, uh, it's uh, voices, various ways where a patient would could actually go and talk to the doctor that they weren't getting a good service from. Um, informal face-to-face -face talk with them. Um, 
They could, they could go onto the board of the hospital, perhaps. I've been on the board of a hospital. Um, they could complain. Maybe for, they have a formal complaints procedure. Um, they could... Opinion polls. They could um, uh, start a petition. Various ways in which they could express their voice. They could use their voice to express their dissatisfaction. They could talk to their elected representatives. Um, now... Um, voice, um, the trouble, the tr- voice doesn't have very strong incentives actually to improve. It doesn't offer very much incentive to the people working within it to improve. Uh, people, they might wish to avoid unpleasantness. They wish to avoid people coming and telling them what a lousy service they're providing. Um, uh, but basically, there is actually there's no way of making them respond unless you tell them what to do in the old mistrust model. Um, uh, also, of course, it tends to respond to those with the loud, loudest voices. Uh, it's the better off or the more powerful in the society who can manipulate the system more effectively by using their voice to try and get a better service. Um, uh, I won't go into, go into details about this particular uh, diagram. This is, but basically what this says is that when you looked at the British National Health Service, on the whole, it was the better off that got the better deal. They got the better deal out of the health service. It was designed to help the poor. It ended up helping the rich. Uh, And this was largely because it was a system which relied upon the voice to achieve it. Um, So, what about the fourth model, choice? Um, Well, um, Under a choice system, providers are independent, they're not-for-profit, or they may be for-profits, and they they may be a partnership between public and private, and they compete with one another. Patients make choices, and the public money follows the choice. So there are prices set, and the government or the insurer, the social insurer, pays uh, for the service, but the patient chooses where to get their hernia operation done, where to get their cataract operation or whatever. Um, so hospitals get more resources through the number of patients they attract. Um, uh, and, um, and this is essentially, is what, it's not quite the same as a conventional market, it's what we call a quasi-market. Uh, and it, there are three ways in which it is different from a normal market, which is... The funds come from government, taxation or social insurance, and that helps the access problem that we mentioned right at the beginning. Access at the beginning. You have diverse providers, for-profit, non-for-profit, even some public providers. Um, and, and this is quite important, you have people to help the patients make the choice. Because, of course, the trouble is that patients are not doctors, they do not have medical knowledge, Uh, and they find it difficult to make a decision about what constitutes a good hospital and what constitutes a bad hospital, uh, and um, you have agents to act on their behalf. Um, We have evidence that these tend to work. There's evidence from the United States, from California, mostly. Most of my American colleagues tell me never trust anything from California, so we perhaps not necessarily take that at, at face value. However, uh, we have evidence from the way it has worked in the United Kingdom that actually we do seem, if you have a competitive system of this kind, we get higher quality 
and lower costs. Um, and it tends to be fairer. It is the poor who want choice in our, in our system, um, but also throughout the world. When you ask, you ask people if they want choice um, of hospital or whatever, everybody thinks it's going to be the rich who will always say, we want choices. Actually, studies throughout the world in a variety of countries have shown that it tends to be the poor who want choice um, because it gives them power. It gives them power. Uh, I mentioned earlier that it was the better off who did better out of voice. The better off are better at manipulating bureaucratic systems than the poor are. The choice model gives the poor some power, and they tend to prefer it. Um, uh, um, Now, there are various problems with choice, which I expect Henk will uh, come through. Uh, Cream skimming is an issue. Maybe I won't spend a lot of time on this. Um, But basically, cream skimming is when you select, the hospital selects the easiest patients to treat. And that can be really a problem. But you can introduce financial systems to compensate the hospital to make sure that doesn't occur. Uh, Or you give them no discretion. They they do not have a choice. They have to take whatever patient turns up. Um, um, There is a danger, which is what I was saying earlier about... Uh, the private systems, which is supplier-induced demand. That is to say, incentives in the system to provide oversupply, to overtreat, um, to provide too much service. Um, and uh, the way to deal with that is to have a good system of primary care, a good system of family practitioners who act as gatekeepers for the service. So they go, so to go to a patient cannot go directly to a hospital. They go first of all to the primary care physician who decides what they need and then helps them make decisions about which hospital to go to. That is the way of trying to deal with the problem of supplier induced demand. Not easy in a country, um, we are lucky in the United Kingdom, we have a history of a very strong primary care system, family practice system. Um, I know it's not easy in other countries where that tradition is not so well established, but nonetheless, that is the way to to try to develop. And I understand that within China, there are uh, movements to try to uh, develop the primary care system and to make it more effective. Um, So, overall, what is the conclusion here? I'm finishing, Chair. Um, All systems are bad. Uh, What you're looking for is not necessarily the best system, but the least worst system. Uh, I don't know if that translates into Chinese very effectively, but you are not looking for... There is no no perfection in the world. Um, We are looking... We are comparing imperfect systems, and we're always looking for the least imperfect. Um, Oops. Um, in many situations, not in every situation, but in many situations, the one with the least worst structure of incentives, with the, the least imperfect system, certainly in my judgment, is one of choice in a quasi-market, choice of patient. Not mistrust, not trust, not voice, but choice. Um, but the relevant policies do have to be designed appropriately Uh, And that is the key towards running a least worst health system. So on that note, Chairman, I will stop. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just now, Mr. Grant has uh, given a detailed presentation. He has detailed the models, uh, four models in the UK, and uh, he has uh, analyzed the history of the uh, healthcare models in the history and the disadvantages and advantages. I believe it will be of uh, great uh, reference for China's medical reform. Uh, next. I would like to give the floor to Dr. Hank Beckdine to give a presentation as a respondent. Thank you very much, uh, Professor, Professor Hu, and thank you as well, Professor Julian Legrand. Um, I thought I could give him a hard time, uh, but again, he has spoken so well that I have perhaps to start changing my tone during my uh, deliberation on this presentation. What I will be doing is... Um, reflecting on uh, the China situation especially. Um, again, I think I would fully agree with what Julian Legrand has been saying. On the other hand, I do think that there is a bit, uh, there's a big but. If we focus on the China specifics, especially on the three ways which are very specific for the quasi-market, which are the funds that the government is providing and also the providers, are they diverse enough? And the agents, do we have agents in, in China? And I would argue that more homework needs to be done before it will work. The funds from the government, is there sufficient funds from the market to support this model? Because this is one part of the model. As such, China spends 4.5% of GDP, which is, in, if you would translate it, is very more, more than 100 US dollars, and that's actually quite enough. But... At the same time, we need to realize that within China, there is still high out-of-pocket expenditure. It is more than 45% people are paying from their own pockets. The government is directly putting in 20%, so less than 1% of GDP. But admittedly, they also, and that's the other 35%, they are subsidizing in the area of insurance. But I would still argue that with the 45% out-of-pocket, we have difficulties addressing the issue about equity and access. In China, you first have to look in your pocket if you can have access to services. And that is, I think, still a very sad situation. Even though the things are now improving and then health insurance is being established for both the rural area and urban areas, but first you have to look in your pocket before you actually can go to the hospital. Is the government also spending enough that the areas in safety and quality, which are a prerequisite for uh, health systems to work, is there sufficient money being spent over there? China, post-SARS, have been investing in some of these areas, but are we there yet? I'll skip this one. Uh, this is just an overview of the expenditures. If you look at the providers, are they diverse in China? At the end of the day, they look very diverse. Anybody who doesn't know China thinks always that actually there's a big privatization going on. At the end of the day, and my figures are a little bit old, I left in 2007, although I tried to kept informed, that the hospitals are actually 5% of them are actually properly privatized and cut the ties with the public. All the other ones, all the providers, are public but for profit. Why for profit? because they get very little money from the government. A clinicians get on the average 
5 to 20% of his or her salary from the government. All the rest, the person has to make him or herself. So I do not think at this very moment that the providers are very diverse and they're still very much relying on making money. Do we have agents in China? Who are the agents? In other countries, you should be looking at what the health insurance is doing. But if you have a reimbursement model, what is, what is here in China, that you first pay, you first pay your user fees, then you go back to the insurance and then you get your money back. So it means that actually the patient, him or herself, has to deal directly with the provider. And he can or he, she cannot negotiate well with the provider. There is no agent benefit from the current health insurance system because it's based on reimbursement system. If you also look at, uh, in China at this very moment, the controller and the purchaser of, of health services is, in fact, the same government. What you often see in other governments is that you have the government space, plays indeed a government controller oversight role. But in China, they also run both the urban and in the rural areas, the insurance. We do think there can be some benefit over there. This slide shows you that the patients needs help. When China started increasing some of their expenditure in health, we did some very small survey with the World Health Organization, but also the World Bank and the government, we did also a bigger one. Actually, the first money what was put extra into the system ended up in the pockets of the provider without very little benefit for the patients and very little benefit even in the area of access. Access was barely increased. The only thing that happened is that extra money went straight into the pocket of the providers. So the patient needs help. They might need an agent. Here in this overview, what you do see is that, out of, that especially in countries who are relying on out-of-pocket expenditure, so it's not only China, they, have, they actually, the way those systems are being paid is through selling pharmaceuticals and diagnostics. And I think I see a few people of you smiling. Yes, there is here over-diagnostic and there is over-treatment. Is it benefiting the patients? We don't think so. If you look at Mongolia, which is a farmer's low out-of-pocket expenditure, you see even that the part of the drugs and pharmaceuticals is far much lower because that is not a system which is relying on out-of-pocket expenditure. So the patients need help in a system. I think the quasi market in China could work, but it needs to be a few things need to be sorted out first. First of all, I think the government needs to start spending more in order to deal with some of the issues that we have been raising. People need to have access to services, and that needs more investment. Nobody gets for free treatment. But also we need to create a better agent that can bargain for better quality and lower cost. The patient on his or her own cannot do this. We need to make sure that there is at a certain moment somebody who can do it. We need to move away from user fees. And in addition, I think in the China circumstances, there needs still to be a stronger regulatory system and oversight system in order to have a viable service delivery model for China. And there are many examples. Things are improving, but we're not yet there. And we do think that these things need to happen before, it can happen before we can move on. Also, this last point about a regulatory system is crucial for the private sector even to start playing a more effective role. It is already there, but I do believe that it can start playing a far much more effective role and start helping society a lot more when this regulatory aspect is done better. But let me also emphasize, you do not put the systems in place to regulate the private sector. You put those systems in place to regulate health services, whoever provides.
The other thing which I would like to do, because I would like to, to, to still close with, with looking at the opportunity this fair moment, still one step back. Look from the macro perspective. We need to invest in health. If you want to prosper, you need to have a healthy population. So it's worthwhile to invest in health. But we also heard this morning, Stephen Roach was mentioning it, that in China you have the highest saving rates, a very high saving rate, especially in the rural areas. Why? Because people need to have a little bit of money because if they have anything in their family in health, they need to pay for it. If we want to increase the consumption, then people should start feeling a lot more safe and instead of saving the money, start spending on something. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. That's also a macroeconomic reason that things need to move on. The issue about the, the voice, in China, there has been a lot of unrest actually also about the fact and, and, and uh, displeasure about the fact that if you have a child and you first have to start looking into your pocket, that hurts. And people have been very upset about how also doctors and hospitals have been not treating them because you didn't have the money. There has been for sure also stability concern, one reason why the government, I think, also moved on. What can the government now do? There is now increased um, government funding, and that creates a lot of opportunity. First of all, I think it's important that it start meeting the equity goals. At this very moment, the reimbursement levels of health insurance of the rural cooperative medical scheme is around the 30%. The poor cannot afford to start paying 70% of the healthcare bill. In order it to be helpful for universal access, the reimbursement level should be higher and the co-payment should be less. From a WHO point of view, where we see where universal access has been able to achieve, that you actually do not have more than a co-payment of 20 to 30% in order to achieve the universal access. Now, China might not be able to get there overnight, but I think that's the way it should be going. But you also still see, if you have still co-payments, there will always be poor who cannot even pay the 20%. On top of it, you should have safety nets who can even also deal with this area. In order to create an agent, in order to make sure that the money that's extra been put in the health insurance, you need to have somebody who can argue with the provider for a better deal. We need to start making sure that instead of the patient directly paying, that the health insurance start paying and start arguing about the bill and start arguing about the price. It is not fair for a patient to do this. But with this increased government funding, there are, there are really opportunities. There's also something very special, but it's a very difficult area, and I put it for, for sure as number three over there. In China, there's also possibility to start separating the government's role on the oversight part and the government role as a purchaser. Perhaps it is better that you have a separate purchaser who start arguing in a better way to get a better value for money. If you do them both, they're always happy with, with each other. And that, that sense, I think you do not get a benefit from an insurer who can do this separately. In conclusions, I do think that the quasi-market can address many of these issues. But I do think that much still needs to be done in order to start using it. We need to have more increased funding. We need to get an agent. And we need to make also sure there's an appropriate regulatory systems. There are many opportunities now to get better value for money. But some of those choices are very hard. Korea, one of your neighboring countries, have done quite well. But they have failed to move towards prepayment mechanisms. Why? Because the doctors and the providers don't like it. User fees is easy. You can bargain the price directly. 
These are difficult choices, but it would also be a missed opportunity with all the extra funds what is going in over there. If you want to have better value for money, it's an important area to move towards. Just two small remarks before I close. China puts a very ambitious thing over there, universal coverage by 2020. It's important that we have to realize a big system you can't change overnight. But it's already very important that China has defined where it would like to go, and we have to go step by step. There will be a lot of frustrations on the way, but it's clear where they want to go, and I think we admire that. But we need to be ready, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it, because that's the way it works. You need to start changing the policies in the meantime. Policies have certain incentives, and at a certain moment, certain incentives have, again, a bad side as well, and you might have to start changing. That is not a shame. That's a reality of trying to get there. But what we also need to do, provincial governors are being judged still about the economic growth. We hope that they also will be judged upon the access that people have in their province, but also that they will be measured in their province how many people actually went into poverty because they had to pay a health care bill. We need also to get the incentives of the political structure within the country right in order to get there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, sir. Now, Mr. Beckdon has uh, given some recommendations about China's medical reform, history, and progress and the future. I would like to say it's an international perspective on Chinese work. Maybe it's more objective than our ideas because sometimes, because we live in this mountain, we do not have a full understanding of our, our position or our development. Professor Grant and uh, Dr. Beckham Beckdine, have given good presentations. I should say we can see experience from the UK system and also China's reform progress and also its issues, they have put forward some good recommendations. So I would like to have a question for Mr. Grant. What do you think of China's current health care reform in terms of four models? What do you think of the current Chinese uh, health care system in which stage of four models? Uh, uh, I, I know a little bit about the reform, but not a great deal, so I wouldn't want to uh, give a definitive statement. Um, but my understanding is that, um, that China is moving towards resolving the access problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe the first of Henkes' conditions uh, that there's sufficient government funding, I mean, it's not there yet, but I would think that we are moving towards that, that there will be sufficient government funding so that everybody, uh, regardless of income or location, 
whether in a rural area or an urban area, has access to a reasonable amount of health services. Um, you already have, of course, to some extent, a fee-for-service system um, within the hospital arena. Um, as I say, I think at the moment the way it works is somewhat perverse incentives, encouraging over-treatment and over-prescription. Um, I, I think, I mean, if I might presume to suggest, a, 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 as I say, I think the, the resolution of some of this problem um, and again, it relates to one of your conditions, um, uh, is uh, trying to establish a strong primary care system, a system of good family practice or health clinics. And again, I understand, I think that is part of the reform strategy, is to try to do that. So I would say that you are moving, my understanding would be, that, and I don't know what your view would be, that we are moving towards, in China, uh, more of a, of a quasi-market system, but there's still quite a long way to go. What do you think about the, this opinion? I, I would agree with uh, Julian. Uh, it's, the first steps have been set, and I think the good thing is China has been a lot more clear over the past year where it would like to go. Mm-hmm. Will the part be easy? No, it will not be. Mm-hmm. But it, it's important that, that uh, what we've also learned, for instance, from some of the OECD countries who have been able, some countries didn't have access either, and they have been struggling with it. And they started something similar. They at least started first defining a package. Mm-hmm. It was, in general, very small. And then while they became richer, they started increasing the package and also started making sure that the patient could have access to it. It means that they started paying part of the bill or making sure there was sufficient pooling that it wouldn't get people into poverty. Mm-hmm. Now, on that part, China is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not a part that you will see within the next coming two or three years a lot of results, but I do think that universal coverage by 2020 is real. Mm-hmm. But we have still many issues. From If you break your leg in Shanghai, and even when you're being insured in Beijing, mm-hmm. you're not being covered yeah. Yeah, yeah. because it doesn't have any portability. And that is also the other part. From We have now insurance province by province, and the benefits province by province differ so much mm-hmm. that there can't be any portability. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I think it will be really step by step in making sure that these insurance schemes all come nearer and closer. And then indeed, I think 2020 might be something very realistic. But in the process, people will be very unhappy. Okay. And people should not be also seen as a failure if in the process you need to start changing it a little bit because providers are always very clever. They will always try to get the best deal out of it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. So this is a very good chance. Uh, if any question to ask our guest, Professor. Okay, please. It's young lady. Oh, sorry. I'm Sun Jing from WHO. From WHO, Hank is my old leader. I have a question. Because in his presentation, he mentioned um, many data which are provoking. Uh, 5% has been mentioned. 5% providers are private ones. And 5 to 7% of public, uh, public uh, hospitals' uh, funds coming from government. And uh, in this case, Public hospitals 
reform has been listed on the agenda, high agenda. Oh, I would like to know your comment on the reform of public hospitals in China, hospitals in China, and your suggestions. And also,、uh, addressed to another speaker,、uh, what do you think?、Uh, Of suggestions that you can put forward for the reforms of the public hospitals in China. Thank you very much, Sun Jing.、Uh, if I have any figures over here, is because Sun Jing gave me、uh, gave me them.、Um, I, I think it is what we can see, and I will most likely jump immediately to from what's happening in the hospital reform. I've been very encouraged to learn that at least now in 16、uh, urban areas, hospitals. Are now moving towards prepayment, and they're trying now to start that the insurers start paying the doctors directly, and they move away from that the patient is going to pay it. I think that's excellent. The only thing that I strongly hope, because we have already some evidence, we have we have globally evidence, but we've got even evidence within China that it indeed will work. It will work to get a, to to reduce the overdiagnostic. It will reduce the overtreatment, and these things are very important. And it will also reduce, at the end of the day, the out-of-pocket expenditure from the patient. The only thing that I would like to encourage China is from: do not stick too long to pilots. If it works, make sure that you that you scale it up. <laughs> I have seen countries, and not only China, they believe in pilots. If they have a problem, they do a pilot, but they never look back and start saying, "From the, we did a pilot because the aim was to scale it up. The aim was to do it better for the whole nation." And as you know, China is a very big nation.、Um, uh, just a, a comment or two, because again, I'm not all that familiar with the system.、Um, but、um, I, I think most countries are now moving towards a system of paying hospitals through、um, what the Americans call a DRG system, a diagnostic-related group system. By which you pay, you have a diagnosis,、um, and there is a price associated with that diagnosis or that treatment. And regardless of how much the hospital actually spends、uh, on treating this patient, that is the price they get. And that has some of the advantages of a prepayment system, because it means the, the hospital has an incentive to economise.、Um, um, Much of the experience is, though, that it is probably a good idea if that price is set by the government, and it's not the hospital is not allowed to vary the price and to cut costs, cut prices. There's some evidence in some countries that when you have a system where hospitals can set the price and then can vary the price, that they cut prices, but they also cut quality. And they cut quality quite badly.、Um, so,、um, on the whole, it is probably the best, again, the least worst way of、um, funding hospitals is through some kind of pricing system, funded by the government, but also with the prices controlled by the government. Okay, thank you. Other questions? There was a gentleman over there. Oh, oh please. Okay, please. Thank you, Mr. Hu.、Um, I have a、um, I have a question to、uh, the. Please introduce、uh, yourself. I, my name is Robert Li Li Zhaoling, just graduate from LSE.、Um, I have a question for Professor Julian Kang. 
Um, it's about a UK NHS system. Um, from my understanding, that I know there is a consensus between the Labour, Labour Party and the Conservatives that NHS is fairly successful um, by the Tony Blair's and New Labour governments and through the last 10 years or so. Um, even with this economic downturn, uh, Dave Cameron um, had a campaign advert says, I will cut the deficit, but not the NHS. Um, so I would like to ask the opinion that what do you think? And do you think the NHS system is um, fairly successful? By your turn, the least worst system so far? I suspect you probably would give me a yes answer. <laughs> and so that I have um, another follow-up question. Um, because there is a huge gap between the budget and the actual spending every year of the NHS in UK, and also the recent uh, hospital scandal, I think is probably a Watford hospital scandal. Uh, so there are loads of problems that NHS have right now. Um, what do you have in your mind if there is a chance you'll be the Lex uh, advisor of the Lex Prime Minister um, <laughs> after several months? And what, what would China would learn from it if you have the solution? Thanks. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I understood all of your question, but I think, I mean, I, I certainly would not say that the NHS uh, is uh, the best system in the world. Um, and indeed, we do have many problems. Um, uh, we, uh, on the whole, the system comes out quite well in terms of access. Um, now it's much better in terms of waiting times. We don't have these ridiculous uh, long waiting times for procedures. Um, there is nobody in the United Kingdom who feels uh, the, the international surveys compared with other countries show that the UK scores very well in terms of people feeling they can just go to the doctor. They are not inhibited by financial costs or whatever. Um, in some areas of outcomes, um, the National Health Service is not so good. Um, cancer. We are, the survival rates after being diagnosed for cancer in the United Kingdom um, are not as good as in many of the continental European countries or the United States. Um, and uh, I think I know why that is, and it is because they have relied, in cancer, we have relied much more heavily upon a trust model. Um, it is called a network model, in fact. Um, they have set up networks um, of hospitals uh, where um, uh, and the idea being because cancer is very complicated to treat, uh, it is much better to have a network system that is properly organized and not fragmented as in a competitive uh, system. Um, the snag is, I, I talked to the... Um, the director of one of the uh, of our, our principal cancer hospital, um, and she is a, uh, she is a really a star. She is uh, very good, and she said um, the problem is that uh, uh, the network is used as a cartel. It's used as a device for dividing up the work, uh, dividing up the patients in a way that keeps everybody's job and doesn't do any good to the patients. Um, 
And uh, what we should have, uh, and certainly the advice I would offer the next British Prime Minister, is to encourage more competition, even if it leads to some fragmentation, and it will lead to some fragmentation, to encourage more competition, more patient choice in cancer. And that is certainly the kind of direction that I would advise uh, um, a British Prime Minister to go in. And indeed, as you can see, it's also advice I tend to give to other countries too, because I think that, on the whole, the least worst system. Okay. Uh, We have just um, five minutes. Oh, oh. the the last last round. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oh, let let her. Oh, oh, next question. Okay. Um, Mr. Chen, uh, a faculty member at the uh, National Chenggong University in Taiwan. My question for my grant, you know, I'm a bit surprised in an era where the U.S. healthcare system, which is very much market-based system, is a disaster. And also in the U.S., I mean, in China, the healthcare reform in the past more than 10 years of market reform, the government here has been claimed that there's a big problem with the market-based reform. Now you are promoting or you are saying that quasi-market is the solution or, or is the best or least worst. I'm very surprised about that. You know, I, I would be very interested in having a dialogue with you. But for now, I have just a few questions for you. You know, in the U.S., it's a quasi-market healthcare system. You know, the Medicaid and Medicare is not a market. You know, it's more public. But also, there is also a market. And in this system, the quasi-market system is not turning well. And that's why Obama is wanting to have the healthcare reform. So I'm very interested, you know, and curious about your solution or your, po- uh, your proposal of providing market incentive is the best. You know, how you interpret or how you explain uh, this uh, uh, incentive uh, system. You know? And also the other related question is, uh, the other person was asking about national health system in your country. If we were to compare national health system in your country with other countries, international comparison, there are scholars who have, who have done research about international comparison. And the UK healthcare system is one of the best. You know, the satisfaction level of uh, your citizens are quite high in comparison with Canada, with the U.S. So you seem to be very humble about uh, uh, the national health system uh, in your country. And the, after Thatcher, you know, the, uh, the Prime Minister, Thatcher is trying to promote uh, the reform into a market-based. And my understanding is uh, the people in uh, UK resisted that. You know, she was not really that successful. You know, so I'm kind of uh, uh, interested and curious about why you are promoting quasi-market 
you know, which is what is going on in the U.S. and which is not a very successful system. So this is more like the, uh, promoting some, some kind of a dialogue with you. Yes. The, um, uh, I have to disagree with you, uh, as you would expect. Um, what is going on in the United States? The problem with the United States is not with the hospital or healthcare delivery system. It's not actually also with Medicaid and Medicare. The problems in the United States are, is that the principal difficulty of virtually all the U.S. Pro, uh, the source of virtually all the U.S. problems is the fact they have employer-based health insurance. Um, employer-based health insurance, they, they, in other words, that, that where you work determines the care, the uh, insurance policy that you get. Now, that creates all sorts of problems. It creates problems when people leave work. It gets problems, uh, problems when people um, stay uh, uh, not in work. Uh, all sorts of transitional problems uh, that it causes. Um, that is... And, it is fundamentally, at the end of the day, an access problem, not a delivery problem. And that is what, in fact, U.S. delivery of healthcare is rather good. They're, the quality of the healthcare provided in the U.S. for people who can afford it uh, is good. Um, and uh, so the, the, the whole direction of U.S. healthcare reform is to try to resolve the access problem. Uh, and not the delivery problem. And I was focusing very much on the delivery problem. Uh, and in the UK, yes, I, th- I mean, I think the UK system is quite good. Um, I, I, I react a little bit against it. In Britain, there is a temptation always to say it is the best in the world. Uh, and it is certainly not that. <laughs> it is certainly not that. In fact, I think, if anything, the Netherlands system is probably closest to being uh, the, the best in the world. Uh, or the least worse uh, in the world. Um, uh, And as I indicated, I mean, but I do think, uh, sorry, as as I indicated, there are are distinct problems in the UK system, particularly in terms of certain health outcomes, which simply are not as good as many continental European countries uh, are. Um, But I do think that the reforms that we have introduced, the reforms... First of all, the targets and performance measurement reforms that were introduced, the targets and terror regime, that did work. That did work. I don't think it works in the long run, but in the short run it worked. Um, And then we have introduced more of a quasi-market in delivery. And uh, I believe that that has uh, indeed, that is paying off. We have some evidence to suggest that's paying off. That is improving services. But what about the Netherlands system? Would you say the... Uh, uh, I, yeah, I could say something. But I also would, would like just, just to touch upon um, uh, what this previous question also was about. From, we should also still realize that governments have also failures. We're talking about market failures, but the government have also failures. So it, it's a bit of balancing and getting it right. And you heard me very clear this very moment. I think China was still suffering from the fact that they have been following the market model to the extreme. And we need now to get it right in order to have people access. But at a certain moment, a bit of competition is no harm. And with getting the balance and making sure that there is access and that there's quality and there's control of cost. And all these elements you have to look at. And sometimes you have to, to deal with the government failures. Sometimes you have to deal with the market failures. And, and it remains important that in the area of policies, that's the way you have to look upon it. 
For China, this five moment is very clear. In, in my view, from we are suffering. China has been suffering very much and it went far too far to the market. And I think, in that sense, I think SARS has been very helpful for senior leaders to see that they also has a government responsibility in health, etc. And they're coming along now. I think for for the Netherlands, indeed, I think there's now an interesting um, an interesting reform has taken place a few years ago. Everybody in the Netherlands is now insured with a private health insurer. Now, that looks then very tough, but in the Netherlands, we've got such a regulatory system that in this whole system that people who are poor, they're getting assistance to start getting entries in the whole system, etc., etc. And now what's happening now that the health insurers, they're actually trying to make sure they get the best deal out of it. I have many friends who are doctors, and I can tell you they are complaining. They are complaining because the private health insurer is giving them a very rough time. And perhaps they go a little bit too far because they said they really say, no, I don't want you to do it for 1,000 euro. You should do it for 925, etc., etc. And, and that part, it is true. From If you're at a certain moment also higher, and that was also what I was trying to say from that China most likely also can benefit, if you hire somebody else to start arguing to get better quality and a better price, I think also for China, it could be very beneficial. Are we already there? Not yet, but it might be helpful that, it, that perhaps it should be a semi-government agency. Now China is and a controller and a provider of services. There are also some benefits to learn from this. Okay. Uh, the last question, I hope in, uh, inter uh, foreigners, uh, is the, the last round. Uh, hi there. I've just got a quick question about uh, Professor Legrand's theory or framework of motivation and agency. Sorry, I'm sorry. Where, where are you? Oh. There, there, there. Right in the back. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> right, okay. And, um, and sorry, yes, and so, the question is? Well, two quick questions, if I can. Um, do you think that motivation and agency work best in cultures or areas where the concepts are um, more well-received or promoted or valued? And then also, do you think that in a country with 700 million people living in rural areas that choice is ever going to be a real option? Uh, your last question was about choice in rural areas, the absence of choice in rural areas. Well, yeah, do you think there's scope for a proxy for choice where... Well, uh, that, that is clearly... A, uh, let me deal with that. That's clearly a problem for a choice system. Um, if... Uh, uh, and obviously it applies very much to China where the rural areas are, um, uh, have very few facilities to have choices. Uh, an interesting thing we found in the UK, though, was that um, uh, the people in rural areas were much more prepared to exercise choice than the people in urban areas were. And that was because they were prepared to travel. They were used to travelling in order to get good facilities. Um, so um, they were prepared to travel long distances to get what they regard as the best deal. Now, whether that is applicable, when, uh, Britain is a very small country and the distances are not as enormous as compared with China as the third largest country in the world. Um, uh, so the, this, this may not translate over. But one should not assume that simply because... Uh, there is little choice in, uh, apparently in um, a geographical area uh, that the people within it do not want choice and are not prepared and are prepared to exercise that choice uh, if necessary, if they can. Um, and your first question was about motivation 
um, uh, and the, the applicability to different concept, uh, different cultures. Um, uh, I I think the conceptions, um, the extent to which we are all uh, uh, partly driven by self-interest and the partly driven by concern for others, I think there is a universal there. Um, I think it's true in all cultures that, that all human beings have some conception of self-interest and also some conception of care for others. Um, it, I, I, the balance does differ, though, between cultures. I mean, one of the interesting things, it seems to me, about the U.S., the debate in the United States over health care has been the debate between people who say, um, uh, I think we are a collective. We ought to care for the people who are suffering and who are needy and who perhaps have made bad decisions in the past. And another group of people uh, on the right wing who say, uh, we took out health insurance, they didn't take out health insurance, um, well, that's their business. I mean, that's their bad luck. I mean, we, you know, we, we are just concerned with ourselves. Why should we pay for somebody else's concerns? Um, and I do think that is a real debate, and that's a real debate in America uh, and probably in other countries too. This, the choice between the, the collective and the individual, that balance has not fully been resolved in many countries. Thank you so much. In the interest of time, no more questions. Thank you very much for the two scholars' insightful presentation and also answer the questions. It's fair to say that the reform of health care system and the design and improvement of that different countries has made as related to the development of economy and politics and society. Special thanks to Mr. Grant, Professor Grant, and Dr. Hank, comments of the China's healthcare situation, and he especially mentioned uh, we should quicken our step and uh, reduce the pilots, pilot projects or doings in China. Also, uh, we often succeeded in pilot, but we we uh, we often. Failed in spread, widespread practice. I hope that can be improved. Thank you very much, two speakers. Next, we well, welcome Harvard Davis, the director of LSC, to make closing remarks. Let's welcome him to come to the stage. Thank you very much. And um, since we are slightly over time, I'm going to be very brief in closing. But I just wanted to offer one or two thanks, of course, to our sponsors, to all the speakers today. I'm not going to list everybody, so I will thank the three of you as proxies for everybody um, who has spoken today, uh, to thank you for your engagement throughout, and particularly for your questions. Conference sessions always depend heavily 
on the quality of questions, and I think that's been very clear all day. But I would just like to say one other thing before we finish, and that is that we hope that we can build on this conference and that it isn't just a one-off event, however good it might have been, um, and that it leads on to something else. And I think Nick Stern may have made this point uh, briefly in his introduction, but we do think that this is a rather important moment for China and China's relations with the rest of the world. The financial crisis has thrown China into many governance bodies, which it was excluded from before. Climate change has created an absolute imperative for the rest of the world and China to engage with each other and to reach agreement. And as a result, we are at an interesting turning point where China needs to think hard about its global ambitions and the rest of the world needs to think hard about China and what China is itself trying to achieve. And we think at the LSE that there is scope for academic involvement in this process uh, and that a school like the LSE, which is based in the UK but is totally global in outlook, as you all know, is well-placed to make a contribution and to engage with China in this process. And we would like to do that. We have some quite ambitious plans for expanding our research in China and our engagement with China. Uh, and these plans are so ambitious that probably at the moment we can't afford them. Um, which is maybe where some of you come in. Uh, and I'm not ashamed to say that we will be trying to attract support, no doubt from foundations and others, but we hope that among our alumni there may be people uh, who are interested in helping us with this process of engagement with China. And I think there is nothing more important for an institution like the LSE today to be engaged in. And I hope that what we've done in this forum is demonstrate that a lot of the work that's being done in the school, whether it's on healthcare, on climate change, on international relations and diplomacy, or on financial reform, is very directly relevant to China, that we have people who are expert in all these areas and more, and that an interplay between Chinese academics and officials and the LSE can be extremely constructive. So I hope we may have inspired some of you to think that you can help us take this momentum forward. Finally, we plan the whole forum will be available uh, in video form. Um, you can get access to it through our website. Uh, also, of course, there are lots of other related events and speeches and podcasts available on our website, and I encourage you to stay in touch that way. But finally, what has been a great pleasure for me is to feel that there is, even 5,000 miles from London, a strong LSE community of people who are all outward-looking, thoughtful, and engaged. And I hope that you have found it a pleasure to be with each other 
just as much as we who've come over from the school have found it a pleasure to be with you. So I now formally declare this LSE Asia Forum 2010 in Beijing closed. And you may now go and drink as much as you like. Thank you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>